0: My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. Frank Ayato was an excellent triple jumper himself, 50 meter plus triple jumper. Certainly one of our very best coaches in the horizontal jumps. He coached Emilia Aldama to remarkably high standard. I was always surprised how mature, shall we say, she was when she was still producing very high levels of performance. I began, as I've tried to do during the whole series, is to ask him about his early years in the sport.
1: My first love was really football. At school, I was very, very good at most of the sport that I touched. I played table tennis, county standard, played basketball for the school and obviously played football, county standard as well. I was actually at um, Watford for a while. Those days, it was a lot more difficult for people of colour to get in the teams. I found that um, the football was more subjective and being objective and uh, obviously didn't didn't get a chance to make the bigger team. So I decided that I would uh, take up athletics because, like I said, athletics was very, very objective and, you, you know, stand by measurements. Yeah, You jump fast, you're in the team, you jump far you're in the team. So uh, how I actually took up triple jump was really weird. I um, We had a school games where we, we just tried everything, javelin, sprinting hurdling the whole lot i was shown how to do a hop step and jump and uh on my second attempt i broke the school record and, and that was it that was the beginning tom i i just fell in love with athletics because uh, there was immediate achievement
0: what age were you then frank
1: 13 13 14. Well, as
0: young yeah. as that yeah so how far did you jump then
1: oh god
0: 11 meters.
1: Oh, did we have it meters? It was feet and inches.
0: Uh, yeah, feet and inches, yeah. right?
1: I think I was I jumped 39 foot something, uh, 13 meters. You know, it was it was quite a low record.
0: That's a good distance at 13.
1: Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, Tom. No, <laughs> I did no I. No, idea.
0: Now, did you have the same two coaches as me? I had two coaches called trial and error. Yes. Yes. Most of mine was error. Yeah, I
1: don't know who came first, whether it was yeah. error and trial, but uh, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to uh, have had a lot of support and help from my um, school teacher then, John Owen. Really, a, a good PE teacher was into rugby, cricket, you name it. Very, very enthusiastic, yeah. and and lived not far from Cocktail Stadium. Yes, I wouldn't say he was proficient at. Uh, jumps, but uh, he did enough to encourage me to, to come to Coptal and do some training. Unfortunately, he left uh, within a year and a half, two years of me taking up triple jump. so I was left to fend on my own and, and do my own training. So, self-coach, yes.
0: And did you make it through to the English schools, under 20?
1: Yes, I, I got to the English schools. Um, I think my first, oh, God, was somewhere in Birmingham, and I, I remember queuing up in a pen and all these big guys, you know, they had all the best spikes you could ever see. And I had my shorts on and I was cold and I had no idea where I was, what English schools was about. And uh, I remember I was in the relay team for Middlesex as well. I, I must have made the top eight in a triple jump. And uh, I remember being called for the relay final. And I went to the officials and I said, sir, i have to go and do the relay. And he said, well, you got one more jump to do before you go. And that was my last jump. And I took my last jump and then ran to the relay and, and did the relay and came back, and I think we got first in the relay. And then my, my school teacher said, do you realise you came third in a triple jump? Good guy. <laughs> like I said, I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. So that that was the beginning, and then... I guess I got a little bit cocky. I knew the event, you know, I knew the people that were taking part. And then the, the following year, it was at Crystal um, Palace. And I remember jumping over, four I think I jumped 14.10 for a 14-year-old and, and broke the British 14-year-old record. That was awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, I didn't know you jumped over 14 at that age. That was a hell of a distance. Yeah. Oh, you're four years ahead of me.
1: Oh, Tom, it was (laughs) luck.
0: No, no no luck in it at all. Now, how did your senior development occur?
1: Once I ditched football, where uh, clubs were begging me to come and play, um, I was quite comfortable because now I could see performances and I was getting into teams, the middle sex team, and I remember arriving at Lily Shaw. At some point, you know, I don't know if you remember Lily Shaw, but it was a good place to be at. I
0: remember it yeah. well.
1: After winning at Crystal Palace, I became a name in my barra. Uh, I was in the papers, the local newspapers. So, you know, I was I was a bit of a I'll call it a, a small celebrity. And then <laughs> I like, got invited to camps, uh, Southern Counties, with yourselves, yeah. Andy Norman, playing a pivotal part in in the development then on. So the camps I got to meet people like Aston, Dave Johnson. I thought, Tom, everything that you said about triple jump was fantastic. You know, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I'll go back and tell my school teacher what we did, how we did it, when we did it, and we put some of it in practice. And now I know where I got my coaching skills from is listening to you guys. And I... On a Friday night, that's what we did when we came to Crystal Palace. We sat and watched events. You know, all I knew was that I was actually learning and was later on when I looked at, you know, how did I learn to coach long jump? How did I learn to coach triple? And those basics that we learned, you know, that camaraderie oh, yeah. that we had, wanting to know, wanting to be part of a team that was learning, it's what's, you know, made me the coach that I am. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really thankful, Tom, for some of the stuff that you guys did in those days. I'm not saying I use all of it now, but, you know, learning is not all about the great things. You learn the good and the bad.
0: That's right. <laughs> There's an advantage. We tend to forget this of being with people in other events. Yeah. You're picking up stuff from all over the place.
1: You're meeting guys that have actually made it to the top. And you're thinking, well, I'm in the same place as, you know, Jeff Capes and Jeff talks to me. He's not a stranger. And and it just went on like that, you know, Tessa Sarnes and you name it, they were all there. They're all there to be seen. Steve Ovet. That's right. All those guys. And it was it was just it was just so great, you know, to be among Fantastic international athletes and Olympians as well.
0: You're not the first person who said that, Frank, and I tend to forget that because I was having such a great time myself, (laughs) wearing the pants off every Friday night, showing these old movies of the 1936 Olympics. You probably knew Tajima better than anybody. And he was the first guy to jump 16 metres in the 1936 Olympics. Uh, What was your first experience of formal coach education, Frank?
1: Formal coaching education, once i um been through the learning of being a natural athlete, jumping, I got to a certain stage where I started picking up habits. So because I had no coach, i cop copped all, I used to train in the dark. They would only turn the lights on when there were four people or more on the track. So I did most of the training in the dark, and... Didn't progress as much as the likes of Keith and Aston and Dave Johnson. And I picked up a lot of injuries. And once I picked up the injuries, uh, I said to myself, this is going to be hard going forward. So I started to look at coaching and putting back something that I'd gained from the sport. And I remember, you know, looking at the sport of tour and there were a number of kids that needed help. And so I decided to take my level one coach with Dave Johnson, took me through it. It was, it was fantastic being able to give some experience and see the mistakes that I made. You know, went forward and corrected that with other athletes that I could actually work with.
0: I noticed you just barely missed 16 metres. You did 16 wind assisted, 3.4 wind. And then you did a much better performance, I think. You did 1598 with zero win. So if you'd had a 1.9 or a 2, you would have been a 1620, 1630 jumper.
1: I always felt like I was, because I guess I didn't have a coach and struggled with my run up. I remember turning up at various meetings, and I remember one European junior qualifications uh, that was held in Worley and i really really wanted to go tom I, I was dying to go because i know aston was going i went again i always leave it till the last jump and i i went down the runway and pop step and jump it was way way over 16 meters but it was marginal oh, dear. it took forever for them to measure it and i actually cried it was the first time that i cried doing the sport because I felt, you know, I'd I'd done enough to go and and I did jump far enough, but they wanted us to jump over 16 metres before we got selected. And I felt, you know, during my career that I did jump over 16, but obviously it wasn't measured. That was the reality of what I had.
0: Yeah. You were talking about approach run. I always feel, Frank, that not enough attention is paid to that. You adjust it even during the competition. If the wind picks up or the wind suddenly comes out you adjust it. You don't just stay with it. The other factor I think that I want to talk to you about is what I call spatial awareness. That is in the final 16 strides, picking up where you are, making the adjustments and coming off. What do you feel about that?
1: It's important. It's paramount to our event. I would go typically to a training session and I'll just say, we're not going to measure your run up. Just put a shoe down where you think your run-up is going to be. And then I want you to run and hit the board. And that's how you develop some of that spatial awareness. So you either chop a little bit or extend a little bit, but you're going to be in a good position to take off. And often enough, you go to a competition and, you know, you look around and someone accidentally, sometimes purposely, has moved your run-up. Well, how do you cope? Do you waste that last jump? Do you waste that second to last jump? You've got to have that spatial awareness. And I I deliver that with my athletes all the time.
0: I've never actually seen it mentioned. You don't see it mentioned, do you? You hear all about the the mechanics of the whole thing. But, I mean, if you look at our best ever triple jumper, here's a judgment onto the board.
1: Amazing. Yeah. He was quick. I was in Gothenburg when he did that jump and... uh, it was just an amazing jump to see, um, and, and he kept it up. So, you know, it was it was something to watch and something that I preach uh, whenever I'm coaching, the speed on that runway, his lightness, the way he developed the hop, step and jump. That's right. Uh, hardly losing any momentum. To me, that's what triple jump was all about.
0: Do you think we spend enough time working on basic running speed?
1: I don't think so. I was coaching an athlete, a long jumper, who jumped well over eight metres. And we started talking about developing speed on the runway. Now, there's two ways you could look at it. He was quick enough over 20, 30 metres, but just could not maintain it in a relaxed manner. And as a jumper, we need to be relaxed. Jumpers are sprinters. And I'm not saying, you know, you should be doing 600s and 500s, but speed endurance was important. So once you've got that runway and you've got that 30-metre to 40-metre runway, it's done in a way that is relaxed, so you're not getting to the board looking really stressed or tired. Yeah. And I tried to teach that, and I remember that i telling me that, well, I only run 30 metres, so I don't need to learn how to run 100 metres. But when you look at all the great jumpers that we've had, they've had a really good base of sprinting.
0: That's right. Now, I want to look now at a more general thing. Your thoughts on the present condition of our coach education setup?
1: I think it's lacking. I mean, a lot of people go online to learn online, yes. That's the modern way of doing it. But spending some time with, us, we did, let's say one weekend in a month, doing the winter months at Crystal Palace, spending it with people face-to-face, learning, listening. But I don't think the sport reaches out enough to look at the experiences that are there now. I go to competitions and people avoid me like I'm a plague. They don't come to you and ask you questions and say, how did you get X to jump that lady to jump 15 meters. How do you get this athlete to jump 17? No questions asked. And I'm willing, I'm happy enough to share my knowledge because yeah, I don't want to take it with me. It's no good when it's gone with me. I want to share it. We're looking at things now. I've been involved in some coach education recently with England Athletics and I sit on uh some some board with UKA, and hopefully we will get some uh, traction on it.
0: One of the things that is very clear to me now is dropping numbers of coaches, Frank. Why do you think that is?
1: There's so many things to be done outside uh, sport. There are other sports perhaps offering more than we are. So football obviously offers a lot of money. You get the 11-year-old who's on 5,000 pounds a month being paid to mum and dad to look after that one because this particular team wants to sign that athlete. And then what I've noticed in, in the past two, three years, rugby is also caught, caught on and is doing exactly the same thing. So I coach at the Coptal Stadium, Alien Stonex, they call it now, and they actually bring children age three five, six to play rugby. Do we do that in athletics? No, we don't, and if if we do, I've I've never seen it. But kids play with the ball. So when they grow up, what sport do you think they're gonna go to? We don't offer enough, but we should really be offering because there's so many things that those kids can do in terms of the, the array of events that the sport gives.
0: I was a rugby fanatic. I mean, I played till I was 66. I only stopped because I didn't want to hurt young men anymore. I I remember talking to one of the top coaches in rugby, and I said, how many of those hundreds of kids who arrive in mini rugby actually go to senior rugby? And he said, one in 200. Most of them stop about 13. Of course, what we've got is a very similar phenomenon. We've got 35,000 children in that 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. But by the time you get to 20 to 35, it's down to about seven or 8,000, men and women combined.
1: There's a number of issues that perhaps the government needs to address. So parks have been built on, roads are full of cars where we used to play football, play on the streets. There just isn't the desire to put sport as a, yeah. an education so you get to a certain age of school. When I was a sixth form of school, we were made to do sport. Nowadays, kids get to that age and they don't have to do sport. You know, you do it up to the sixth form or the fifth form and that's it. And I think it needs to be encouraged. You know, if you ask me, the most important subject in school is actually PE. Because without your health, who are you?
0: For Z would have to take a slightly different direction, become more health education related. Absolutely. So that it would be part of a multi, a multi-faceted education, and I think it probably has to start with the parents arriving in primary schools, so that the habit of eating and exercising properly is established as young as possible. Not just sport; it's exercise, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I used to catch a bus 2B all the way from Golders Green to Crystal Palace. I'll be totally knackered, you know, coming back the other way because of the work that you guys gave us and I'll fall asleep. It'll take about an, an hour and 20 minutes to get to Golders Green and the bus driver will come up and goes, mate, you know, this is the last stop you need to get out.
0: <laughs> Nowadays,
1: kids are driven everywhere. They get to the track, they do a little bit. And then what happens is when they get a bit older to start driving, they get in a car drive to the track, jog around a couple of times, and they say they're warmed up. Or well, the warming up starts from you walking to the bus stop, catching that bus, and walking from there, for me, to the track.
0: Yes, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the rural clubs' rank. Many of the rural clubs have no athletes at all above the age of 15.
1: So what you're saying is that we're not selling our sport. Yeah, We look at the performance end, but really... You need to build a foundation so those guys could come through. Everyone's important. Without those guys at the bottom, we're not going to develop the top.
0: That's right.
1: You know, once we lose one athlete at the top, it takes a number of years to develop one. So I look at the women's triple jump. We had loads of girls jumping over 13 metres. I mean, you can you can almost count on one hand how many people are jumping over 13 metres nowadays. We don't teach enough. There aren't enough people out there coaching it. So they go to the local club. There are no coaches. What do we do to bring the coaches back? What do we do to entice that parent to take up a bit of coaching?
0: Very difficult. People stay in the sport to coach because they want to stay in it because it's a very pleasant environment to be in. And some of the clubs I I see. It's a whole bunch of guys all doing their own thing and never speaking to each other. So it's almost a similar phenomenon what you're describing further up. And that culture's got to go.
1: Yes, we create competition. But between my peers, we still exchange ideas. We still talk about the sport, although we are in competition. And I think that's what needs to be realised at the bottom end. Yes, you want to have the best athlete, but however... You need to learn together and i don't think they do they don't learn together they talk behind each other's back and trying to steal each other's athlete and the rest of it and i think i would rather speak to a coach to be a better coach than take an athlete away from a coach but yes human nature everything is about having the best having more but if you enjoy the sport like i do I like my sport to be number one, number one in the world. As yeah, it was yeah. some years ago when News of 10 used to stop to show Ovet and co-running in Oslo to break the world record. And that, for me, was so significant. You know, I could look at it and go, God, they're sharing a bit of athletics. It stopped to show athletics. You know, you'd be lucky to have a channel dedicated to this sport nowadays. So, We need to get back and support the league, support the clubs, but it's gonna take money. You know, anyone that we think is good enough, is given X amount of money, they got on funding. Do they always produce? No, but we're happy if we get four or five medals in the Olympics. I think we got to do a lot better than that. Yes, four or five medals in the Olympics is good, And it's getting harder to obtain medals. But I think if we can spend a bit more money on the lower end, then we have more people perhaps attending and having chances to win medals.
0: But I think, sure the main capital you've got is imaginative, creative and generous of spirit, men and women.
1: Yes. I don't sell myself as much as I should do. We also need to sympathise, empathise with each the guys that have taken up coaching recently or uh, the inexperienced coaches, I still have problems charging athletes, Tom. I was never charged for coaching. Most of the coaches now do charge athletes and everything is online. I haven't adapted yet. And maybe at some point I need to adapt to Mm -hmm. maybe show some of my skills, some of the sessions that I do. The future and the past need to come together. But I've never been used to selling myself on the web. I've never been used to it. And I think I need to be educated. So I can't blame what the guys are doing. Some of their drills online and all the athletes gravitate to them. And they've ever checked to see how good that coach is. But it looks very, very pretty online. And some of it needs to be addressed. How we address that whether we stop them from doing it or whether we get involved, uh, perhaps that will be the way to go. You know, I often get foreign coaches talking to me, foreign athletes calling me to coach them. And I've coached a number from, you know, different countries. And I think, well, what happened to the British athletes? Don't they trust me? Don't they think I can coach? We're losing athletes as well to um, America and other places, Italy when we have actually got some decent coaches here
0: as well. Somebody once said, Frank, that uh, experience is something you get 15 minutes after you need it. Yeah. One of the biggest problems you've pointed out is the fact that we're not really deploying the fruits of all that experience to the benefit of those who are following us. But um, now in our discussions, and we've had quite extensive discussions preceding this, Frank, I asked you if there were any topics you would like to see covered One was related to the 1968 Olympics. We'd never discussed that before, ever. And I was there. I was a long distance from it, I must admit. I was up at the far end, away from it, maybe 150 meters from it. And the the three men stood up and they raised the the clenched fist as a symbol of black, expression of black power. Let's just think of the names of the men. It was uh, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and uh, Peter Norman, the Australian. But what I found out, as a result of you, by the way, was that it was Peter Norman who suggested the idea of winning the black gloves. I didn't realise that. He, again, never competed for Australia again. That was a significant moment. I was trying to work out what age you were, and I thought, well, <laughs> it's too young to know that. But clearly it made a big impact on you.
1: I mean, I was too young to watch it on TV. I saw clips of it. I wasn't really into sport. But when I look at the 68 Olympics and I look at some of the performance, especially Bob Beeman's performance, and then look at how we slated the guys that protested on the day, at the time I didn't actually understand it and I didn't know what it was really about until later on as I grew up to be an adult and I understood what um, racism was and racism is, and then I realised that those guys were really protecting themselves and acting on behalf of most Black people. When I saw, when I read the stories of, of how they were treated in America, not having equality among their peers, their white peers, I just think, you know, this is sport and everyone should be given the same chance and opportunity. And I look back now and I think we need to. We need to speak about what they did because it was just incredible that they actually had the guts to demonstrate, yes, it did cost cost them afterwards that they couldn't compete in any more Olympics and they couldn't make any more out of their winnings. And and I think we really need to celebrate what they did for us. I just couldn't believe, you know, how well the guys did. And at the same time, they had to demonstrate to show the world that it wasn't as easy as it looked, that they were performing under due rest, performing and not having the same equipment or having the same access as their white counterparts. So to have done that was really, really brave of those guys who had done it. It did cost them.
0: No question of that. And of course, you didn't have television in those days or radio in your rooms. So I came back not really knowing quite what had happened. You understood it better, the wee boy, than I did as a man. The word racism didn't mean anything to me at that time. I'd never heard it.
1: Yeah, I think most people didn't really understand it, that they were banned immediately. Uh, they now got statues of these guys, uh, again, demonstrating with the Black Power uh, salute. In regards to comments about racism, do you think we do enough to celebrate diversity in athletics today? And is there meritocracy for people of all backgrounds who want to have opportunities, be it as athletes or coaches? I think we still got a lot of work to do, but it's a fairer sport than if I was in football or rugby or any of the other sport. I think we're trying... Um, it's still a long way to go. And what I still believe that our sport is run by middle-aged white men. I've heard that from a white person also. How we do it, yes, we all, most of the black guys are shy because of experiences to come forward and maybe uh, help at the club level or help at the top. Sitting back and you say, well, should I apply for that job? Would I get it? Um, I will always think about this. Whenever you talk about racism, people say, well, there's no problem now, but in 10 years' time, someone will say, we've addressed all the problem. Well, how did you address it if there was no problems before? And that's what I keep being told years ago. Oh, you're moaning too much, Frank. Let's address it now, rather than saying, guess what, we're doing the best we can and we've addressed it already, let's move on. I don't have all the answers.
0: We've always been troubled by people who ask questions.
1: And that's me, Tom. (laughs) And
0: and that's me too. I I was lucky, and and so were you, uh, that we had a a secretary in the South at our time called Arthur Kendall.
1: Oh, God.
0: And he welcomed questions being asked. That's how you ended up in those camps. Because we said, yeah. let's those camps. And he says, OK, let's get started.
1: There were two people within the administration part of the sport that left a lot for me to think about. So Arthur used to come to the track, and you will have a little pouch under his arm, and he'll come to me and he'll go, Frank, have you entered the Southern Counties? And i go, no, I haven't done it, Arthur. And he'll go, well, fill in this form, give it to me. And he went round, not just at cocktail, but he went round where meetings were being held. The other guy was Mr Lipton, eventually ended up at um, Brunel University, as it is now. Another guy that used to come up to you and goes, Frank, my boy, what are you doing? You know, are you taking your O-levels? And where are you going to go from here? He encouraged you to look at yourself after the sport or during the sport to take up some education. They saw no colour. They saw no barriers. They'll come to you. We must touch on Lloyd Cowan because you're involved in his uh, bursary scheme. Just tell me a bit about Lloyd Cowan's legacy and and why he's so revered. He would give time to any coach, any athlete that needed it. And one of the things that he did that I didn't realise, I remember going to the... 2008 games in Beijing, and at the time I was coaching a Jamaican athlete and we got called in because he was uh, he had a Jamaican background to take some Puma kit, and then he gathered all the kit. He actually brought the stuff home and gave it to kids that didn't have anything, and that was Lloyd. That was Lloyd all over. So we'd go to a typical games and you'd be collecting, 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 and what he did, he gave it to the kids that had nothing. He was just an immense person to have around. I remember the first time I met him was in World Championships, Helsinki, 2005. We shared accommodation. I remember talking to him about all the problems he'd been to and he actually sat and listened. And he said, Frank, you're the only one that has spoken to me like this. And we became friends. And I thought when he passed away, the only way we can have a legacy is to actually have a bursary. So I'm one of the trustees on this bursary. We don't get a lot of money. Um, We've looked after, I think it was like 90 athletes. We also help coaches and 30-odd coaches. That coach that drives up to Birmingham to go and watch that athlete compete or come all the way from Scotland, we wanted to support that coach. And I think by doing that, we retain some of the coaches Right, and you get kids that perhaps have got nothing, single-parent family. All they need is a bit of spikes or a bit of money to enter that competition or go to the track. And that's what we support. We don't look at performance. We look at hardship. And that's what Lloyd's Bursary has been about.
0: Oh, that's terrific. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. I'll see if I can get something for it that you can auction.
1: That would be fantastic, Tom.
0: Alex, do you think there's anything else
1: you want us to cover? Could you just, let's say, pick out two moments where you've been coaching an athlete and it really sticks in your memory, really special moment that sticks in your memory? Oh, wow. There's been quite a lot. Oh, God, Larry winning World Juniors uh, back in 94.
0: That's like
1: a Yeah. And Yamele Aldama winning the World Championships at age 39, when people thought it couldn't be done. Uh, She came to me at 29, having jumped 14.77. That in itself was world class. How do you top that? Yeah. Her performances spoke for herself, you know, being able to jump. A number of 15 metres more than anyone else had ever done in the world, any woman had ever done. So little things like that just sticks up in your mind. One last one before I leave. It was um, a postcard I got from one of the first athletes, our coach, Francis Agipol. He went to the 92 games in Barcelona and sent me a postcard and you know, it was really touching. He goes, Sir, thank you very much for all that you've done for me. It wasn't about triple jumping. It wasn't, it wasn't about me being in the Olympics, but looking after me as a normal human being. And that really touched me because as coaches, I think we do a lot more than we get given credit for. Correct. That athlete becomes your daughter, your son, your friend.
0: Yes, I mean, I think you can summarise it by saying coaching – is helping your friends.
1: Absolutely. You said it for me.
0: Yeah, you just sort of have a Scottish accent. That's a problem.
1: I will do it <laughs> one day. Oh, no, you're
0: not. Impossible. You just don't have it, baby. You don't have it. Coaching is helping your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. I can't no, do no, it. No, no, don't even, don't you try it. You've got no <laughs> chance. But thanks very much. This is yeah. one of the best ones we've done, actually.
1: Well, I thank you guys. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do this. Anytime.
0: Not at all. Not at all. You deserve it. Thank you. Cheerio, Frank. Bye, mate.